Acts chapter 6, we have been making our way uh, through the book of Acts. We have seen the disciples waiting on the Lord, 120 of them in the upper room. The Spirit of God poured out on them. Uh, Preaching is happening. Miracles are happening. The Word of God is being heard. People are being saved. It's uh, initially... Peter's first sermon, 3,000 get saved, and then 2,000 more. And and then as the church is just living out the life of Christ and the sharing and the giving and the love for one another, God is continually adding to the church on a daily basis. So by the time we get to chapter 6, we we don't have any idea exactly how many disciples there are, but we've seen a few times that at this point, the number of disciples is not just adding to, it's multiplying. So the church has really, really, really experienced a tremendous amount of growth in these early days. And, and, but that growth was not without opposition. And every time we see the various oppositions that Luke, the author of Acts, puts before us, as they've dealt with them, the result has been more growth. So opposition comes, and it's, it's persecution from the outside. It's infiltration Chapter 5, Satan trying to infiltrate the church through hypocrisy. And many of us understand that you've met someone that says, well, I don't go to church because there's hypocrites there. And then we always tell people, well, come join us. You'll, be, you'll fit right in around here. You can get, get a seat right next to, right next to me. So, but, and I don't take that lightly. Hypocrisy, uh, Jesus does not approve of that either. God deals with that, Acts 5, and the church grows. And then... Uh, we, we've seen more persecution, actually intimidation, as they were threatened and beaten. But they could not be stopped. They said, we're not going to obey you. We're, we're going to keep preaching and doing what God said. And the result of that is still more multiplication. Well, Acts chapter 6, we deal with yet another challenge to the growth. And it's not infiltration. It's not intimidation. This time, the challenge itself is the multiplication. The fact that the church is growing and the needs are growing And the need, the challenge now is administration. And I have uh, fruit trees. My wife and I have a bunch of fruit trees. I told her a number of years ago, she loves to landscape. And I'm not particularly fond of digging a lot of holes. And that's what I've done over the last, we dig a lot of holes. And I told her, if I'm going to dig a hole, I want to get fruit from that. I want to eat something that comes from that. You know, like, I understand trees can look pretty and that's great. But I want something that I can eat. If I'm going to take the time to dig that hole, I want to eat something. So over the years, we've planted lots of blueberries and Asian pear and apple tree and peach trees and fig trees and all kinds of stuff. But what I've noticed is that everything in the world is against me eating that fruit. Now, the seed, the tree is wired to bear fruit. I mean, it wants to bear fruit, but the opposition I was telling the first service that we tried to go to Lowe's or Tractor Supply and buy Japanese beetle traps. And you bought them all. You guys have them. I don't know where they are, but they're, they're just not there. So, uh, because the Japanese beetles are horrible. They're eating all the leaves and the trees just look poor and pitiful. And if it's not Japanese beetles, it's drought. If it's not drought, it's some type of bacteria or a fungal infection. or what, you know, There's all this stuff in the world that comes against that tree actually bearing fruit. And we see the same thing in the church. But if you deal with those things, if you deal with the oppositions, then the result of that is you get an awesome crop of fruit. So in chapter 6, we learn some real important lessons about dealing with and handling church growth. And it's a great lesson for where we are 
as a church. We've had all of these different types of things, you know, oppositions that, that have, we've dealt with over, over time. One of the most challenging things to deal with is the fact that some of us around here remember when we were 50 people meeting in a little office, you know, down in Palmyra. And, and over the years, things have grown. And, and, and so there's challenges that come with that. And if we do it well, if we handle those things well, then we will see, as they saw in the book of Acts, continued growth. And some of you go, oh, I don't want continued growth. Well, we'll deal with that issue another time. Uh, there was room for you here, and we want to make sure there's room for anybody that wants to come and hear the word. So the answer in here was not to stop the growth, but to ha- how to manage it. And so chapter uh, 6, verse 1 says, Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. As we look at this chapter, this half of a chapter, we'll see not just one challenge but two challenges. One of them is obvious. The other one is a little more hidden, and I'll mention that as we go through. And the second, the one that's more hidden, is actually uh, the one that's more important. But the first one's important too. Uh, the challenge is as the church is growing, challenge number one is how do we meet the growing needs of a growing amount of people? When the church was small, we knew everybody, there were a handful of widows that we were caring for, and it was easy to manage. But now that the church is thousands of people, there's a lot more widows, and it used to be we could just kind of handle it on the fly. It just kind of happened. But now we've got to be organized about things. And that's what, what it's going to happen in chapter 6. And a lot of people have the impression that organization is against the Holy Spirit. And somehow the Spirit can only work if we're disorganized or if we don't actually have a plan. And that's completely opposite of what we see in the Bible. Uh, God is a God of order and not a God of confusion. He speaks, you know, or we live in a very orderly world. And, and he's taught his disciples about delegation about organization when he fed the 5,000 remember what he told the the disciples he said you tell the people to sit down in groups of 50s that sounds like organization to me and that's from the mouth of Jesus and then Jesus broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples and the disciples gave it to the multitudes of people that were there to the 5,000 that were there so there was this this uh, very planned and purposeful delegation that was happening to meet the needs of the hungry people. And so Acts 6 gives us the same thing. There are these two groups of people in the church. And the challenge is perceived or real, we don't know for sure, uh, favoritism. And that comes about because they are actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're meeting the needs of the widows. God takes real important or, or considers real important two groups of people, widows and orphans. People that are in, in an area of need or in a time of need in their life that can't provide for themselves. In that culture, if you were a widow, your husband would have provided for you, but they didn't have retirement plans and life insurance and all that stuff. So if you were a widow, you were dependent on other people for help. Remember the widow that had two mites? That was all she had. That was her livelihood, and she puts it in the offering box. But she couldn't go out and get a job because she was, uh, she was a woman and she was, she was a widow, and so she would need the care of others. So the church, the first thing I see about this passage is that even though the number of disciples is growing and even though the church is getting bigger and the needs are getting bigger, they don't say, well, we just need to shut down the widow feeding program. It's just, getting, it's just too complicated now. We just can't do it. And that's the reaction I see from a lot of people when things grow, when things get more challenging, the gut reaction is to say, well, let's just not do it. 
And I think that's a wrong reaction. That's never the right reaction. The right reaction is how can we creatively continue to do what God has called us to do? If God is calling us to do it, just because it gets hard doesn't mean we're going to back off of it. It just means we need to seek the Lord and get creative about it. So they're meeting, and we should be doing the same thing. In this day, and this church, you guys, through your giving and through your generosity, we do a lot of benevolence, helping to meet needs of people. And it's, as we've grown, it's gotten more complicated. But yet we've continued to, to do that. So that's the first thing I see in this passage. Is they're actually showing mercy to people. But there's, in the midst of that, these two groups have developed. It says there's the Hebrews and the Hellenists. So who are they? The Hebrews are those that are sort of the natives from Jerusalem area. They spoke the native Hebrew tongue or they spoke Aramaic, which would have been common in that area. And they had their own Hebrew culture. But the Greeks or the Hellenists, which just means Greekified, if you could say that word. I just made that up. They, they have a Greek, they've adopted sort of a Greek culture. If it was in our world today, we would say maybe those are the Christians that were in compromise. That's what we would, might label them. They, had, they were looking more like the world than, than maybe they were comfortable with. Because it was a Greek, a Greco-Roman world. That was, there was Greek culture. And so these people had come from different parts of the world. And they brought with them their culture and the Greek language. And now they're all in the church, and one group is sort of feeling, uh, it's almost like a racism kind of thing. There's these two groups, and, and there's a division between them. And in the midst of that, one group, defending their own, their widows, says, well, you're showing partiality against our group. Our group is not getting treated fairly. And so a complaint, or literally, if you like to take notes, a murmuring or a grumbling See, they weren't actually going to the people that could make the change. They were just talking about it among themselves. You know how that happens in the church, don't you? One group is dissatisfied. They feel neglected. And that's what, that's what the issue is. They were being neglected. And, and they, again, maybe it was real. Maybe it was just their perceived neglect. But nonetheless, that's what they felt. And so this one group feels like, well, our group is not getting treated fairly. And so they begin to grumble and the disciples eventually hear this thing. But I understand how, how this happens, especially as we've seen things around Calvary Chapel grow. I know there are people probably sitting right here that have felt neglected. You went through something or you had a, you had a surgery or something happened in your life. And, and, or or you, you missed church for a couple of weeks and no one noticed. And, and no one called you. And you're feeling just like they felt. And neglected just means to be sort of overlooked. And that happens so easily in a church that's growing, in a church that's, that's expanding. Again, I, I know there was that group that looked back at, at things and said, do you remember the old days and we were just 120 people waiting on the Lord in an upper room? Weren't those great days? Those were great days. But now are great days too. Look at the word of God is expanding and multiplying. And we just have to consider. And they they don't ignore the complaint. By the way, the answer to this was not rebuking the group. They're going to deal with it. They're going to hear and deal with the complaint. But but I just, I recognize as a a pastor, as one of the pastors here that that I know, and it's hard to deal with it. People do get in that place of feeling neglected. Sometimes, it's, sometimes no matter where you go, you feel neglected. It's, sometimes the issue is you. Yeah, I see a few chuckles there. You, you know what I'm talking about. But sometimes it's a real issue, and I know around here it's been a challenge as we've grown. You know, things that at this church have just been changing ever since we started. Every year from 
from this, you know, from meeting in the, in the little school to meeting in the high school to then building. Each step along the way, we've had to change and morph and figure out how to handle things. And so we've needed patience as we tr- change and conform to the new needs of the, of the growing congregation. And we're learning as we go. Just as they're learning, they've never had to deal with this before. The apostles weren't you know, Jesus didn't say, now here's how you're going to have to handle this. They didn't have that. They didn't know exactly how to handle it. So they're sort of dealing with it on the fly. So there's this issue of neglect. There's a conflict that's arisen. Then verse 2 says, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the, of the disciples and said, and before you read what they said, I want to just reiterate what they don't say is they don't rebuke the, the one group and say, well, you guys are just being selfish. You guys need to grow up. You need to just get a handle on this. You know, quit complaining. We don't hear that from them. That's not what they say. They say, you know what? We hear your complaints and we want to address them. And I think if the ministry team here is doing our job well, you can let us know if you're dissatisfied. Don't put it on Facebook and send it out in a nasty message. Come and tell us. Come and tell someone who can actually do something about it rather than grumbling and complaining and telling a thousand people that can't fix it. Let someone know, because maybe you don't know this, but I don't have a magic ball, you know, one of those balls that you can look into and see the future. We don't have that. So if you're going through something or if you're disgruntled or if you're complaining or if you're upset, we don't know it unless you tell us. So come and let us know. I'm just kind of being just transparent about these things. So they hear about it, and then they say, we've got to deal with it. So they say to the disciples, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, that is a sentence, but it's a mouthful. And that's the second, the the more hidden challenge of neglect in this passage. The greater challenge is that what might happen here is that the apostles actually meet the needs themselves. That they say, well, I guess we're just going to have to take this over. Who was doing it? How was it happening up this, to this point? We don't know. But the, the suggestion was likely made because of the way they answer that Peter, John, James, you guys need to handle this. And they could have said, yeah, I guess so. We're the apostles. I mean, we're the professionals. I guess we should do it. They could have said that. But they're smart enough not to. A kind of smarts that, that keeps pastors from being burnt out the kind of smarts that I need to continue to keep in front of my mind and the kind of smarts that you need to give me and and those other pastors around here space to keep in front of our minds because they say it's not desirable. People said, hey, it's desirable that you guys take care of this. And they said, actually, it's not desirable because to do that, we'd have to give up something else. How many of you have learned that life is full of trade-offs? And the disciples had a really clarifying decision to make. It would have been a good thing for them to go do that. I mean, what do you mean? You, you guys are, are above the soup kitchen? You're above the food distribution to the widows? I mean, didn't Jesus teach you guys to be servants? I mean, it would have looked good. What an example they would have been to the congregation. To roll up their sleeves and serve those widows. I mean, that would have been a great example. It would have been Christ-like. would have been a good thing to do, right? But it would have been the wrong thing to do for them. Clarity in life is really important. Clarity for me, clarity for you. What is it that I'm supposed to do? And what is it that I have to say no to? We are notoriously lousy at saying no. And there are, and in our culture, there are more choices than ever before. And see, we are stressed out and maxed out 
and spread out in our lives in general because it's so hard. Everything looks so good. And it's all good, as they say. But we just can't do it all. So one person said this, clarity about what is essential fuels us with strength to say no to the non-essentials. And the illustration is this. Let's say your life is like a four-burner stove, but you only have enough fuel yeah, to, to fuel one burner at a time. And you have to choose which burner you want to fuel. So let's say, you know, you can pick what you, what you label your different burners. This one is spiritual life. And this one is work life. And this one is recreational life. And this one is family life. Just to make, just to name a few. So you've got these four things, these four burners, and you have to decide which one you're going to fuel. And that means three of them are going to go unfueled or marginally fueled. And you say, but that's not, how can I neglect this and do that? That's life. There's always going to be a trade-off when you're choosing to do what's essential for yourself. And so you do the one thing and then the other things go where? On the back burner. So you have to be careful. Had they put, had they chosen to put the, the practical ministry to the widows on the front burner, turn up the heat on that one, let that be the passion for them, what would have gone on the back burner for them? Teaching and preaching the word of God. And what would have happened to them is what happens to so many. The very thing that brought success in their lives, the life of the church, would be the very thing that would lead them ultimately into failure by neglecting it. So you see, they preach the word. I mean, miracles are happening. Spirit of God is moving. They, they are preaching and teaching. They're, they're preaching house to house. They're preaching daily in the temple. I mean, these guys are, the word of God is, is filling. They, they say, you've filled our city with this teaching of yours. They were aggressively getting the word out. And, and that was awesome. And so had they chosen to put that on the back burner, you know, the church is growing, what would have happened? You think the church would have started to shrink? Because the word of God would have stopped going out. They would have said, and I know it in real time as a pastor that in the week, during the course of the week, like I've got Wednesday night Bible study, I've got Sunday Bible study, and that takes a lot of time and preparation. But you know what always gets pushed to the back burner in my life? Study time. Prayer time. You know, on average, they've, they've polled pastors, the average pastor prays for three minutes a day. Three minutes a day. One pastor, he interviewed his deacon group. There were about 12 guys that were deacons in his church. Just out of curiosity, didn't know what he was going to find when he did this. He gave a list of, of tasks of the pastor. And then uh, he left some blank spaces for them to fill in if he'd forgotten anything. You know, uh, Bible study time, prayer time, church meetings, uh, home visits, hospital visits. Uh, you know, and on and on it went down to these various tasks and responsibilities. He said, I want you to put next to each one how, many, how much time you think I should spend each week on these things. And so they would write down, you know, three hours on this, hour on that, you know, blah, 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 all the way down the list. By the time they got to the bottom of the list, it was, it equaled 116 hours a week to fulfill the minimum expected requirement that the deacons had for the pastor. And, and we wonder why pastors burn out. And we have this, this idea, this culture of professionalism in the church that says, well, you guys are the ones we pay. I mean, you only work one day a week. Anyway, what do you do with the rest of your time? Uh, we, we pay you to do these things. That's what we do. We come and we sit. We put our money in the offering box and we come, we soak in the word and we go home. We do our thing and you take care of all the needs. That's why we pay you. And this culture of professionalism develops 
and it's not biblical. Actually, what biblically, Ephesians chapter 4 tells us the job of the, the pastors and the evangelists and the prophets and the teachers is to equip the saints, that's you, for the work of ministry. You come and you get fed on the word of God. If I do, my, I don't want to give you guys fast food. I don't want to serve up a McDonald's Happy Meal to you that lacks no, nutri- has nu- no nutrition, it lacks any substance, it'll, it'll just it'll feed you, you get the little toy squeak, squeak, you know, and, and off you go, but if it's not really nourished you. And it takes time with the Lord to do that. I, so when I can do that, then it impacts your lives, and then you guys are going out, and you're doing hospital visits, and you're meeting people's needs, and you're ministering to your neighbors. And, and guess what happens then? The word is going out, and people are being built up, and the church continues to grow. And that's a good thing. And that's God's plan. So that's why they say, in this moment of clarity, the question for you is, the question for me is, what is the thing that you have to say no to or things so that you can say yes to the thing that's the most essential to your life and your ministry. And, it's, and it makes us think, doesn't it? Because we are notoriously bad at saying no. So they say it's not desirable that we should leave. And the word there is the same word used when a man should leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. There's this departure from one thing to be joined and enter into another. They were the fear that the greatest challenge of this moment, the greatest challenge of this passage is that the disciples would stop doing the very thing that they should be doing to do the thing that other people can do. And I need prayers in this area. And we need, uh, you know, to, to work on this because sometimes the challenge is, well, we wanted Pastor Steve or Pastor Warren or, to do it. And, and it may not be me that's there. And as we grow the likelihood is, is less and less that it's going to be me. But it might be this pastor or this guy who's just serving the Lord because he loves to do hospital visits or this woman who can be there and bring the meal or, or whatever. And this is part of being part of a growing church, part of doing it well. And it's the, we, 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 the we want to be a church like the early church. Do you really? This is how it happened in the early church. Not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. That's the word, the root word in Greek where we get our word deacon. Diakonos is the word for deacon. Becomes one of two offices in the church, elders and deacons. So it, this is kind of the, the springboard for that. And it just means to carry out the commands of another, to serve tables. After church, you go to lunch at one of the local restaurants, and the waiter or waitress comes up and says, how can I help you? What can I do for you? What can I get you? They are being a minister or a servant. They're waiting tables. And their whole deal is to do whatever you want them to do. That's what it means to be. So some people say, well, I want to I get into ministry. Well, here's the bucket. Here's the mop. Welcome to ministry. You know, it's just to serve, to be a servant. And so they, they say, we, we can't, if we give up, if we leave this, and, and we, we can't leave this to do that. Therefore, so, so what's the answer? If this is not the answer, then what is the answer? Verse 3 tells us, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you, among the group, among the congregation, seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Hey, the answer isn't accommodation. Yeah, we'll do it. We feel guilty. We need to lead by example. The answer isn't accommodation. The answer is delegation. 
And, and at first service preaching this, I could feel the eyes of my wife going, yes, pastor, you know, listen to what you're saying. And I know, you know, I need to be better about this. And we're working through this and, and, and accommodating the, the growth of the church. Uh, but having to disciple or to, to um, delegate requires that there are suitable people to delegate to. Do you notice that? It wasn't just anybody that they were going to delegate to. It wasn't just who's the most popular, who's been around the longest, who uh, jumps up and down the loudest and says, I'll do it. it they didn't pick people. They didn't say, well, I want you to do it, you to do it. They said, hey, you group, you, you've been watching each other. And out of yourselves, there are people that are rising to the top. They're just demonstrating some leadership. And, and there are four things that they point out. Number one, they chose, at this point, they chose men to take care of this. Take care of the need. Uh, there is a place for female deacons. We talk about that in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, that's a sermon for another time. But at this point, it's going to be men to handle this thing. And they have to be what kind of men? What's it say there? Men of good reputation. People already know them. People already know who they are. And they've already established their character in, in the church. So they're not waiting to have a role or waiting to have a responsibility or waiting to have a title to serve. They've already been doing it. They already have a reputation. And the second thing is they have to be full of the Holy Spirit, not just a little bit, not just half. They have to be full of the Holy How many of you understand that if you're going to be a person who helps to solve conflicts in the church, you've got to be full of the Holy Spirit? I mean, this takes, this is hard to do because people are angry and they're upset and they feel neglected and they're hurt and sometimes rightfully so. And if you're going to get involved and try to help appease that situation or meet the needs, you got to be full of the Holy Spirit. If you got your own issues, if you're not walking with the Lord, if you're in the flesh, you just, you just like set the time bomb off and then, and then shrapnel is everywhere and people are bleeding and it's horrible. You got to be full of the Holy Spirit. You got to have the character of God oozing out of your life. Great question. Who is it, if you looked around the church today, who would you say, you know, that guy, that girl, they are full of the Holy Spirit. So even without like defining what that means, can you think of someone that would fit that, that category for yourself? And, and a better question, would you say that's true of you? Would you say I, others would see me as a person and they would describe me as a person full of the Holy Spirit? Well, that's what they saw in these first deacons, full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. They didn't just, they didn't, these were people that didn't need a list of rules of how to do it. The disciples didn't have to tell them what to do. They just set them free and said, you guys, we're going to pray. We're going to keep studying. We're going to keep teaching and preaching. And you guys figure it out. In leadership, like, what a breath of fresh air that is when you find people that have wisdom, that they can figure it out on their own. They don't, they, they, they're walking with the Lord. They know the character of God because not every situation is prescribed in the Bible. You can't look at, you know, the second chapter of the book of First Hesitations and say, where's that in there? You know, where's... So the fir First Hesitations, it's, there's not a book called First Hesitations. Anyway. But... You have to have wisdom. So knowledge is identifying that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing that you should not put that in your fruit salad. Does that make sense? And so wisdom is, 
is, it's real time. They're dealing with the situation. And sometimes, there's a t- wisdom is a person that knows when to and when not to follow the rules. Rules can be a cheat. Rules can be a way to not have to think or process or consider feelings and situations and people. And so when you're dealing with people and you're dealing with conflict, there's no set of rules for that. It's organic. It's changing. It's confusing. And it takes a person who's really wise uh, to do that. And so that's what was the, the, these are the things they said, choose these kind of people and then we'll appoint them to take care of it. And so delegation and not just accommodation. And that's a, that what that would do is then set them free to continue to, to pray and to have ministry. And notice it says the ministry of the word. The ministry of the word. It is hard work to pray. Prayer is labor and study is labor. Especially if you're an ADHD guy like me. I mean, I got to force myself to sit and study and spend time with it, but I love it. When God called me into ministry, he gave me a love for his word. I love to teach. I love to preach. Uh, and so, but I can't do everything and you can't do everything. So I'm so thankful that uh, this is happening in the church here and, and we're needing it to happen to greater and greater degrees of people just choosing one thing. You can't do it all, but choose what's one thing I can do. That thing you have a burden for, that thing you have a passion for, are you doing it? So that no one else has to worry, so that we just go, you know what? I don't know who does it, but somehow when you go to the bathroom, there's paper towels in there. And I don't know who changes them, but someone does it. And, and you don't know who changes them. And, and I don't know who makes sure that the mints are full, but aren't we thankful that they do? Because that's another thing we've had to administrate, you know, is mints, the mint ministry. You know, I don't know. I got the mint, mint. I bring the mints in and I take the, there's all kinds of little things that you can do. When, when you do them, no one notices you. But when you don't do them, everybody goes, hey, what happened to that? And it's sometimes it's these little quiet things that no one else knows. But they're so helpful so that I don't have to worry about, Warren doesn't have to worry about what, what's going on. It's just someone's doing it and I don't need to know about it. And that's... That sets me free from burnout, sets me free from trying to meet every need, and it allows me to just do what I'm called to do and what others that teach are called to do. So verse 5 says, the, uh, the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen. We'll hear more about him, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, uh, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. So they chose the people. The seven guys, and they said, hey, what do you guys think of these guys? And they said, awesome, good choices. They set them in front of the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. So they kind of conferred leadership. These guys are now going to be leaders in the church, and they conferred that leadership to them in front of the whole congregation. And, and the important thing is, let's see what the result of that was. Verse 7, then the word of God spread. You think verse 7 would have said that if the disciples were busy at the soup kitchen all day, every day, serving widows? It wouldn't have said that. The word of God would have stopped spreading. Why? Because they weren't spending time with the Lord. Because they weren't preparing. But the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. A great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So fantastic. We see as they deal with the issue, they deal with management, they use delegation instead of accommodation, the church is allowed to and encouraged to continue in its growth. 
Perfect word for our church, isn't it? So, so what's the takeaway for you? What's the takeaway uh, for your family? The question is, what are you gifted in? What, what are you passionate about? What burner, what, what thing is on the front burner of your life? And is that the essential thing? Or do you have some non-essential things on the front burner that keep the essential things on the back burner that really need to be brought forward? People that, are, that have clarity in their lives are not people that accomplish less. They actually accomplish more, but in a smaller realm. They're more effective. If you've had the kind of life where you said, I just never feel like I'm getting anything done, it might be that you need to re-clarify what it is you're called to do in life and what is your purpose, not just in life, but in the church. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the work you're doing in and among us as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.